growth pains. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to this new episode of Growth Pains. Today we'll be talking about pains such as delegating effectively, allocating resources wisely, struggling with product market fit, and achieving consistent results at different companies. Today my guest is Asia Orangio. Asia is an early stage SaaS growth consultant. She does this through her company called Demand Maven. And she also recently joined Moz as their newest board member, taking on a seat that Rand Fishkin previously held. So thank you for joining me today, Aisha. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm super pumped to get real open and honest and transparent about what we're about to, about what we're about to talk about today. <laughs> as, as crazy as it is, like you don't get enough opportunities to do that these days, huh? There's a lot of... Uh, uh, yeah. Surprisingly enough, I mean, it. I, I think. I think there's certainly a layer of um, of honesty and transparency uh, I, behind closed doors. But I think when it comes to just in the global landscape of startup and SaaS and growth, this is something I I love from consultants. Sorry to interrupt. I love from consultants yes. because uh, there's this unattachment to like an employer that allows you to be so much more open than mm -hmm. when you have somebody from your company like listening, right? And most people I've had here have been able to open, exactly. but, but there's always a bit of a concern when you work for a company. It's always tricky. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm ironically enough, it doesn't happen, I think, as often enough and publicly enough, but, but that's, I think, why we're talking today. <laughs> cool, cool. Let's get started with a, a little section I do at the beginning, which is a true or false. So in this one, I'll just give you a short statement and you let me know what you think. There's no halfways. You cannot dodge the question. You have to kind of like commit to something. Let's see how it goes. So the first one is funding amount and growth rate are directly proportional. True or false? Funding amount and growth rate are directly proportional. By that, I mean as one increases, the other one increases at the same rate. Oh, absolutely false. Has nothing to do with your growth rate at all. It's a common perception, right? That, that, that the money will unavoidably make you grow. And I guess we all yeah. have seen Quibi recently as an example of, of that not <laughs> yeah. being the case, right? I know it's been an, uh, a big topic in social media and everything, but yeah, it, it happens, right? You can have the best players, the best money and, and still not make it. Yeah. Okay. It <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say infinite money does not a successful business make. It's just not... Uh, it's just burning cash in the front yard to me, but um, but yeah, no, I Quibi is a perfect example. But yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Okay, second one. Most founders believe that rapid growth will come from marketing, when in fact it comes from every department being fine tuned and well aligned. Uh, I actually just recently wrote about this, and I actually think that that the okay. So is the question if founders believe that? Yes. True or false? True. Uh -huh. It's definitely true. And a lot of what I come in and do is educate about how it's got to be firing on all cylinders. Like it's not just marketing, doing all of the heavy lifting. Um, it's, just, it's the same problem of you could be doing all the marketing and converting literally no one at the bottom of the funnel. So yes, I, I definitely think that's true. Okay, definitely agree on that one. Then we have the next one. There are no such things as silver bullets when it comes to growing a business. True or false? That's definitely true. No such thing as silver bullets. And yet we would love for there to be one. Yeah, but, it's human nature, right? Oh, totally human nature. There's got to be this one thing I can do to fix my problem. And it's so rarely yeah. ever just one thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I think I yeah, recently I read uh, Andrew Chen writing about it. It was refreshing because you need some of the rock stars to come out and say it as well for people to be like, okay, then I guess it's true. Otherwise, it sounds like excuses from a bad marketer, right? When, when, mm -hmm. when you just say it and nobody knows who you are. Uh, mm -hmm. The next one is uh, companies listen more to consultants than their own staff. True or false? Hmm. Companies listen more to consultants than their own staff. I, I'm going to have to say, okay, this is just from my personal experience. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to have to say... I, I think it's I think it's true, but I think for smaller companies, I do actually think it's false, but just because they just don't have um, they might not necessarily have the talent to come in and tell them. 
Yeah. Uh, or they might not necessarily have someone with that experience to come and tell them. Sometimes I'm actually the first marketer that they've ever worked with. Most of the time, actually, I'm the first marketer ever to come in and do anything for them. So um, I think with the kinds of clients that I work with, I don't know, I, I, I kind of consider it to be false. I think if they had the internal talent, they would. But my personal in-house experience, I would say that is true. Exactly. Um, it's both sides <laughs> of, the, of the curve, right? Like you feel yeah. a little bit like, because I, I can imagine sometimes you advise something and then the in-house person will be like, yeah, I've been saying that for months. You, right. And only when you came in, it's like, we should do this. Great idea. Right. right? So I think we all have seen, but it's good because you say as an in-house marketer, I think it's true, but as a consultant, I think it's false. And I guess it shows the both perspectives, right? Where you're standing. So, yeah. okay, super cool. Let's go into the uh, icebreaker question that I ask every people in the podcast. So it is, mm. let's start with one thing that you are really, really tremendously bad at uh, that you can share <laughs> with the audience. This one, I... Uh, Like as soon as soon as um, as you ask, I was just like, oh, it's definitely email, like not like email copywriting marketing wise, far more on the managing my own inbox, hands down the bane of my existence, hate doing it, even though it's critical to my success. Um, I I'm the kind of person who gets back to people in like three to four business days. I'm not the like. So Rand, for example, um, if you ever yeah, you know, yeah. Rand back he's and forth, he's like. Oh, instant, instant. Like within 10 minutes, I'm going to get a, a reply back. Yeah. A complete machine. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very much the opposite. I'm like, I will, I will drag my feet for as long as humanly possible on email. Pin it, and I, pin it and just wait for another day to get back to it. I, I tell superhuman to remind me in a couple of days and, and I, I get to it when I get to it. There are, there are certainly some scenarios where it's like, no, I have to be on top of this and I have to be instant, but it is draining for me. I'm not going to lie. Like it is... It's 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 tough, but um, but such a <laughs> no. But this a, is yeah. Go sorry. Go ahead. There's a little lag there. Oh no! Oh no! I was gonna say such a, like a whiny thing to be like oh email like I'm business owner have to do email, but oh, I I do really dislike it as you know just much as much as I can uh, minimize the amount that I have to do it. I love it, but <laughs> this it's is still a, a very new podcast. But so far, this is probably the one I guess have told that I can most relate to I, i am really really bad at it and i think the proliferation of like the slacks of the world have have only made me worse at it because i feel like all of the important stuff from a teammate or something is coming through slack and i keep a really like close eye on that and then email i just get like 90 outbound and the occasional renewal of a, of a tool or something like that so i just developed the habit lately of just like getting really bad at it as well. So I've been changing email clients, trying to sort it out. I'm not there yet. So glad to hear you're on the same page because I uh, <laughs> emailing with Rand, for example, as well, I, I had very low self-esteem about my own email, uh, my own email skills. He replies instantly. <laughs> It's like, what's happening to him? Okay, yes. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, pain number one and uh, that we're going to discuss today, which is delegating effectively. Right, it's, I think it's a common consensus that to be a great leader and to get you know results, you have to delegate. There's just no way around it. And you mentioned that this is one of your struggles. So I wonder, what do you think this is? Because some people delegate because you worry that they won't meet the deadlines or you think that they'll drop the ball and you'll have to do it anyways at the end of the day or maybe that it would take longer to explain it than to do it yourself. What are <laughs> the, like, the, thing, the main reasons this becomes a problem for you? You know, it's interesting because it's been, de delegation has been the ultimate umbrella, but the theme of delegation and the challenge that I've overcome with it has, those challenges have actually evolved over time. So when I first started Demand Maven, I was the only person in the business working on projects. And it became very clear that as, as I took on more clients and also as I learned more, my energy levels would just like, would just tank. Like it, like I was getting to this place where I was, um, I was the sole executor slash strategist and also the project manager for all of, for all of these clients and projects. And then on top of all of that, I've got things to take care of for the business. And so the, the first hurdle was, can I delegate? Like, can I even like, is there a way that I can ultimately delegate anything I do to anybody else? And, and the hurt like the, the, The mental and like psychological things that were happening there were really all around. 
um, can anybody execute this as well as I can? Because I'm able to do this in 15 minutes, but paying someone else to do it might take them two to three hours. And am I going to be okay with that? And then I'm going to have to manage them and manage their expectations. And there was lots of, um, there are lots of like conflicting emotions and thoughts and feelings about all of that. And the more that I, well, one, worked with my business coach. And then also the more that I actually started to test the waters the more that I realized that so much of delegation ultimately came down to how I package tasks and how I package projects. And also, um, how strong is my operational arm in the business? So before, in the very early days of Demand Maven, there were very little operations when it came to like what are our standard processes and what are our standard procedures for how we execute things? Because it was all me. Like There wasn't really a need for it. <laughs> but as it became very painfully clear that there was no way that I was going to be able to well, I don't want to say there was no way. It was just there was no way I could sustain the way that we were currently operating at the time and still also be sane and happy. Yeah. <laughs> like I was going to have to delegate in order to um to just seek a certain level of just happiness within the business. I would I would be working 100 hours a week otherwise. Yeah. Um and yeah. that hurdle I I don't want to say I quickly overcame it. I'm not going to lie. It took me it took me like a solid like I would say 2 years before I ever got to a place to where I was really confident about delegating. Uh and that was because actually of this year we focused 100% on operations and processes inside of the business. So that way when I when I take on contractors and freelancers now, there's a very specific onboarding process. All of our tasks and projects are documented in terms of how we execute things. Um but now that like the so we overcame the first delegation monster if you will the second one is so now i actually have a team of people they're executing on things we've got processes in place like we're we're doing we're doing the thing and it's relatively painless for me now my biggest challenge is honestly it's it's me again (laughs) yeah but but now it's um now it's much more like the nuance has shifted into when we when we do really specific kinds of tasks, I still have a lot of knowledge in my, in my head that I just haven't translated into something that my team can ultimately use. And a lot of it is the really um, strategic stuff that we take for granted that we think is really easy and fast. But for someone else coming in new, it's actually really challenging and they have to like do a lot of guessing and figuring it out. Things like, um, I'll give you an example, translating product knowledge into marketing value propositions or taking a client's product feature set and translating that into how does this make a difference in the market for their customers and having someone else do that when they don't have a whole lot of context and like background info and just knowledge that I have because I'm working with these clients every single week. How do I transfer that? And so knowledge transfer now on some of the more strategic, harder things delegate, that's where I'm at now. And so we have a, we've come up with a few ways to solve this, but it's still it's still very painful. But just because we're kind of having to test like a lot of different ways on how to get this done. And then also um, uh, there's there's even more nuance when it comes to certain marketing tactics and things that we do for our clients. Copywriting mm-hmm. is one of them. But copywriting is a huge, like it's such a huge umbrella, like copywriting for email versus landing pages versus sales letters. It's also um, so personal, huh? Yeah, like if so you have personal. a style, you cannot just like get that from anybody you outsource it to. It, 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 right. it comes with you. And so a lot of um, a lot of what we're what I am learning as an owner, but then also as basically I'm in a, I'm essentially a marketing manager too. Um, so what I'm kind of learning is how can I set up my team who I do consistently work with over time? How do I set my team up for the most success? So that way they don't have to like do any guessing about what needs to be done for the client. They have all the resources and templates and things that they can use to do good work, but that doesn't necessarily fall on top of me to have to provide every time they just, they just have it. Like they're enabled and they're, they're, um, educated on how to do something. Yeah. But I think it's important also that you're willing to have, um, a suffer period in there, right? Yeah. Because if, if you just avoid it, right, and you say it's just going to be more practical that I just get this done right now, the longer you avoid it, the longer you need to keep having doing this. And then you stack up to your other tasks, right? And at some point you have to say, okay, I'm going to have to let other person do it. In the very first projects, they might not do it like I want them to do it, 
but eventually I'm building them up to be able to, so you're gonna have that two or three or four or 10 like painful projects to go through. So then you can actually delegate, but there's no skipping that, right? You're not gonna be able right. to be like, hey, this is the best brief Tassana task of my existence and you're gonna be able to read it and write copy like I do. That's just not gonna happen, right? And what's interesting, and this is a good segue to, to my second question because I feel like a lot of person, people that are now managers have been very hands-on marketers before, mm -hmm. right? And making that transition is extremely difficult because you just oh feel like, like you could just do it. But the tricky thing is that, you know, in startup world, a manager that is hands-on can even be perceived as a plus, right? And a lot of people give you credit and be like, ooh, this guy can like edit video at the same time that he does a thousand other things, fine. But in reality, it's extremely ineffective and extremely unproductive, right? Because you need to be the person that gets to take a step back and spend significant chunks of time just thinking, and just thinking about what's happening next for the business and strategizing and asking the big questions. If you're every day busy with like audio being clipped on, a, on an advertising on Facebook or like cropping the image different or like all this little stuff that you used to do before, then you never get to do that thinking. Is this something that you still struggle with? Like going into the thinker seat and let the show run? Mm -hmm. I, I don't as much now mm -hmm. but even three four months ago absolutely oh wow and yeah. and some and so much of that was because I I knew I needed to expand my team again so I work with two contractors now and technically three to four depending on the task but I have two consistent contractors now but before I brought on my second one I, w I was working with one one consistent contractor um, but then that extra work that I needed to hire for, I was technically doing. And so I, I mean, I, I was, I was putting in anywhere from, I would say 80, 70 to 80 hours a week. And it was hands down the most exhausting period of my whole life. But, um, it, it, it was, it was incredibly difficult to take a step back and, and, and really be that strategic thinker, not for just one company. Cause like there's demand maven like my business, but then I have to do that same strategic thinking for literally all of my other clients. Um, I'm the lead growth strategist. So, and I'm thinking growth, yeah. not just in marketing, but across the entire board, uh, and having to do that really strategic work and do that thinking and that just spend some time on my own, you know, answering and uh, ideating like that work doesn't come easy when you're burdened with tactical stuff. Yeah. Um, and then you don't have any energy to like think clearly at the end of the day. And, and especially if you have a family or if you've got other commitments, I, I particularly don't, but, um, but I can imagine like if you're a founder with like kids or in a family and like other things to do, like there's just no, there's not enough time. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, there's a couple of confusion that, ha that happen in startup world, I think. So first of all, like managers confuse very often, like being, um, being involved with being essential, right? right? Like it's hard for managers to realize that you can be essential without being involved on every little thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and also your job as a manager is to make yourself a little bit less essential, right? The, the show should run if you take four months of holidays still. Um, and we confuse being busy with being productive, right? Because people feel like if I just sit for an entire afternoon and doodle on my ideas, right? I it's absolutely necessary when you're like managing a team to do that. But then you feel that guilt of like, well, everybody's running around and like doing a lot of tasks and I'm just sitting here looking at the window trying to come up with whatever comes next. But somebody has to do that, right? So how much of this over business addiction or glorification do you see in the companies you work with, right? I feel like <laughs> companies see like one slot in the calendar and they go like, we could do that in that hour. It's like, you also need some time to like, Slow down, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you need that. Is that something you see? I definitely see it in, in maybe in, in a slightly different way. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the scenario that comes up for me quite often in my client projects is some, sometimes I do need to be unblocked by the founder in some kind of way. And what I find is there's lots of, um, of overcommitment and how fast that will get done. So, um, sometimes it's like, okay, like I, um, maybe the website was hard coded and 
we need to be able to create a landing page. So I, I need to create, um, I'm probably going to use like an Insta page or like a Make Swift, for example, to create landing pages or create like a separate website. So that way marketing can be in control of that. And that way we don't have to depend on the founder to make like hard coded edits. Yeah. Well, that requires a subdomain that requires, like I still need like technical things to happen in the background. Um, oh yeah, that'll get done tomorrow. Uh, but then when we get to our next meeting the next week, it's like, oh, I didn't get to that. I'm sorry. Um, it'll, it'll get done. It'll get done this week. And it's like, okay, well, we've lost two weeks of, of progress and that's okay. But like, let's set the expectation of, I'm not going to get to this this week. (laughs) I'm going to get to it next week. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not someone to, um, um, you know, be critical or be harsh like when those situations happen of course things come up all the time but i i do think that there's a sense of there's reality and then there's what i would like to happen or like the fiction side of it and the reality is usually what sets in way faster (laughs) yeah and also well like in everything right we try to find formulas uh, that would work so at some point you pull off a project and you go well this way of delegating worked amazing and I'm just going to use this for every project. And then you realize that this is very people-based, right? And the way you delegate to some people, you cannot delegate to others. Like for some people, a simple, concise instruction will do the trick and they'll handle the rest. To some people, you need to make your expectations extremely clear and they need to be written down and they need to be in. So it, it also changes as you move along with teams. In your case, you take your team with you when you work with other companies or do you depend on the in-house team quite a lot as well? So my team is really the the first marketing extension. It's it's actually really rare that I take on a client that already has a marketing team. Oh, gotcha. Um, so we we really are literally the first marketers that come in. So my my team is really focused on delivery. So so demand may event itself is focused on marketing delivery. We ultimately help execute on the marketing side. Uh, as lead strategist, project manager, business owner, I'm obviously responsible for for leading that ship and guiding that team and then also working with the founder on here's here's the expectations that we can set and here's here's where we're ultimately going. Like here's the trajectory, here's the strategy, here's the plan. But um, I really depend on the demand maven team to help execute. In addition to myself, I also get my hands dirty as well when I when I really need to, but um, yeah, it's we're we're often the very first marketing team. We're just the outsourced marketing team until until they can hire full time. Are you? Do you feel like you're good at saying no? I, I feel like by nature, I am a little bit of a yes person, <laughs> which I've talked in this podcast endless times, and I, I think it's it's a bit of a, a flaw. But I've always just related like saying no with like being a dick a little bit like and I try to like be nice and be like hey yeah sure uh and I end up shooting myself in the foot quite often are you are mm. you are you good at the at the heart no we're not gonna do this or is this something the boundary that you, setting yep I'm I am way better at it now than I was two years ago <laughs> yeah so in the early days and even even when I was in-house it it was it was really hard to set boundaries and also to set expectation and stick to that setting the expectation and to just be like, this is a very hard, it's either a no or it's a not right now or a not yet. Um, And now I'm far more confident in that. But I also find that a lot of, a lot of that has actually come from setting boundaries before they ever need to come up, like set, like setting, setting the expectation before it ever needs to be tested. And I find that when I do that in the early days in a client engagement, working specifically with the founder, because that's usually the person I'm working with. um, I set that up front and usually it doesn't come up again. And if it does, it's just, it's a, it's a very soft reminder. And then it's, and then it's a non, like it's a non-issue at that point. Like it's really just a, and then sometimes it is something where I say, you know what, this actually does align with our trajectory now. So we can, we can certainly like fit this in or like rearrange this, but there's a trade-off every time. And I make that really clear when there is a trade-off. So like we can, we can reprioritize this project, but just know that this pushes this off the plate. Um, so, so then it kind of really becomes a, a, a discussion around, oh, okay. So I need to respond respect them and their time and like if i'm gonna if i'm gonna move their cheese like it's got to be worth it right yeah um so yeah, you cannot just stack things on top of each other at some point you run out of horsepower right you need to like uh remove some things out of the equation uh yeah, and absolutely. to wrap up this topic a little bit i wanted to uh wrap it up well there's a couple of things i've learned i think in this topic and first of all is that uh your team's strengths need to be considered right and i think also if the right person for the task is not on your team outsourcing is a really valid option and a lot of people avoid it and you try to force your team into like being able to do anything. So you're like 
Facebook ads, you've never done them, but you'll be, you'll be able to just look at these tutorials or whatever. When sometimes it's just saying, okay, for this stuff, I need to pay another person, right? And right. you'll get things done much quicker. And the other part is that delegating is not only about asking, it's also about giving, right? You need to give people ownership. You need to give them resources, authority, unblock them from everything in their path to get that done and not just say, hey, I expect you to get this done. Call me when it's done, right? You, you need yeah. to actually <laughs> unblock the path for them to go through it. So the second pain you mentioned in our emails was uh, one that I, I think is also really interesting is allocating resources wisely, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. in these pandemic times when marketing budgets have increased, but they're not likely to keep increasing for, for the next few months. Let's see how that evolves. Um, when it comes to allocating resources, especially when you have limited resources because you work with early stage startups, right? And that's usually the norm. Um, it comes a little bit to width versus depth, right? So do you think startups should try to use every available acquisition channel or should they bet big in just a couple? What is your rule of thumb on that one? When it comes to early stage, I find that I find that they need to identify what their best bets probably should be. And then after that, try to go one by one if you can. Um, so I, so I, think, I think that you ultimately do test many, but I don't yeah. think that you're doing it all at the same time. This, I think, also applies to certain growth projects. So it might not necessarily be acquisition channels, but we might decide we're going to change pricing. We're also going to introduce a new plan and we're going to change our onboarding funnel and we're going to like test this new ad acquisition channel and we're going to update the website messaging copy. And that's, that is a lot of change across all aspects of the business and the funnel. And I, and I find that when you, when you try to just like throw up an entirely new experience all at once mm -hmm. you end up not really knowing like you, you end up not being able to really so like solidly identify oh increasing the pricing did ultimately increase our revenue yeah. or oh changing the messaging did ultimately help so um that that's the kind of prioritization that doing it all at once i almost never recommend usually i try to go a little like one at a time if, if possible <laughs> well i think the temptation to go all in right comes from very often i see from low volume right like yes. if, if you want to test something that requires heavy traffic to be significantly like statistically significant or something, then you're tempted to say, hey, I don't have the luxury of just changing this bit of copy, wait for four months, then I change this other copy, wait for four months because it's going to be too slow. I need to right. just like revamp the entire goddamn thing and see what comes out of it. But, right. but uh, yeah, as you say, I, th I think that's a problem, right? I've been in that position before and I have fallen down that path where you're like, okay, if this actually goes better, I will have no clue what made it better, but I just needed to ramp up significantly and I cannot wait for right. every little test. Do you also face that with the companies you work with or do you still stick to like one thing at a time? Yeah, You know, it, it, it is such a, th this is where I would say, I do think it, it depends on, on like what the experiment or the activity is because here's what's interesting. I believe in big swings. Like I believe like in, like if we know that the website isn't performing well, let's completely overhaul it and go for a completely different big swing. This is usually recommended like from conversion rate experts in general, because yeah. you're just more likely to learn from doing a big swing than doing a really nuanced change when you don't have a whole lot of traffic volume, for example, or there's not a whole lot of volume in general. But I do find that when it comes to changing many different things across the entire business, that's where I would say, okay, uh, you don't have to do it all at once, but let's phase this approach. And one of these is likely directly connected to the next. So we can actually prioritize these projects based yeah. off of what we think is like, likely to net out. That's where I would say like ordering that and kind of piecing it out over time is way more effective um, and also gives you more confidence. And I think that's the other thing that's really critical for founders as well. Um, but when it comes to like really detailed things like within a particular function or a channel, like the market messaging on the website, big swing. Like they're like, yeah. they're, like especially when you've got low volume, like there's not a whole lot to lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, when you talk about like allocating resources, one of the parts that's yeah. interesting is it's, it's what your success criteria looks like, right? Like early stage startups tend to have really short runways. So they are very ROI focused, right? They're like, I want to, I put a penny here. I want to get a dollar out. That's like the way you always think for everything. Uh, but we know as marketers that there are some initiatives to require to build a brand, right? Or that will not have a positive return in the short term, right? right. So, and sometimes that requires to 
keep betting on them and be patient until you actually see the benefit of that and just trust your gut. Being a consultant, you also have the dilemma that you know people hire you and hopefully you can show return right away. So you want to grab all the like you know low hanging fruits and show I did this and I changed something so you can get credibility within the organization and whatnot. So how do you deal with that? Do you still big like do big bets on things that you believe in, even though they don't pay short term and you have to explain them? Or are you like, if this channel is not a right positive in two weeks, I'll kill it. Uh, when mm -hmm. it what's your, I guess it depends on the business, of question. course, right? But yeah, yeah, that's a dilemma. That's an excellent question. I, I do agree that there is this, this layer uh, and, it, and it's the contextual layer of the business and the industry that they're in. But I'm, I'm very much the kind of consultant that I, I don't expect to work with any client for many years. Uh, and that and that might that might sound very like nail on the coffin kind of thing. Well, like, why would we bring you on? But but my whole mission and my like the whole approach of Demand Maven is to is to set you up for success. And we can we typically work with clients anywhere from um, on average, I would say about six months to a year. But the goal is never to be this long term agency like we get in, we land and we expand and we're like you're stuck with us for years. Yeah. It's really much more we come in, we enable, we help you put all of the right strategic things in place. And we actually help you execute, like get used to executing because usually founders are afraid to execute. They're scared because like they don't know what they don't know. So they're they're terrified by marketing and executing on it. So our our real mission is actually far more on the let's overcome fear and like let's get you the things that you actually need. Um, so I, I say all that to say my approach is very much, um, I, I approach it as if I were the CMO and I were a full-time employee knowing that I'm actually not, and I'm going to be, I'm going to phase out at some point in our engagement. Um, but that said, if I were to make investments now, knowing that they'll pay off in six months to a year, I'm, I'm going to recommend those investments. Uh, I, of course we have projects that show short-term wins, um, But when it comes to like what's the best for the founder and the business, we always go for the business. Like we go for like what's going to be absolutely the best for the business. And usually founders are bought into that as well. And it's, a, it's yeah. a, one of those expectations I set in, in the early days. Like we're not going to be the team that you hire in like 10x revenue in three months. That's just not us. We're going to be, I mean, it's possible. Don't get me wrong. We've, we've done the 3x thing before. We're much more the team to hire because you want to live for the next five years. Like that's, that's really the way that we position that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because it holds yeah. pretty much true still today, right? And I think it will forever that a solid brand is like the only like long-term competitive advantage that you can truly have, right? Because channels come and go, they get saturated. Like you, if you depend on any of that, you're going to be having a hard time. And building a brand, by definition, it, it just takes time, right? Yes. And it's expensive at the same time, yes. right? <laughs> so you need to put the money, you need to like just have faith on it and, and, and then just bet on it. So that one's tricky. So... Another thing is incentives. And I, it, I think it's very related to like allocating budget because what makes the employee look good is not necessarily always what's good for the company in the long term, right? Therefore, designing incentives, it's really important. If you judge a Google search marketer only on the conversion of their campaigns, they may be inclined to say, okay, I'll just turn off all the mobile campaigns so because those don't convert really well. And then all of these countries, I'll just turn them off and just leave this country that converts really well and I'll make my boss really happy. I'm going to show them a 25% conversion rate, whatever it is. But that's not really good for the business because you're wasting a lot of market and a lot of visibility that the business actually wants that might not show, right? So as an experienced hmm. marketer, we still allocate resources and keep an eye on the big end picture. But explaining that to the CFO or the CEO is not always easy, right? Uh, have you found trouble with incentives in the companies you've worked with, right? Because, or, or, or within your team, right? Internally, right? Like maybe you might be saying, well, to impress Asia, the best thing is that I show her like great traffic here and you just pull off like a little tweak that will bring great traffic, but that you know is like a spontaneous oomph that will not go anywhere. Have you faced that within your team or do you feel everybody keeps uh, an eye on the big picture? Yeah. Um, you know, we don't, Uh, I would say the the businesses that I work with today are so small. Like they they are literally like one to three employees mm -hmm. um, on the client side, and then and that's full time employees. And m I think maybe the largest team I've ever worked with was probably closer to fifteen full time employees, very early stage. Um, 
so I find I find incentives are actually very rarely part of the conversation. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's usually much more like, how do we not die? <laughs> like, <laughs> I can imagine. Like, yeah. like that's the that's that the real sense. conversation. But I will say, um, in terms of how we, uh, this actually segues into OKRs um, a little bit because mm-hmm. I will say that we do when it comes to like motivating and inspiring around growth, we actually do use OKRs, and that that I would say, I mean, it's not quite so much like an incentive of like you'll get this if you if you achieve these goals. Um, but we, but we do leverage OKRs to motivate, inspire because I work with mostly contractors. I, they don't have OKRs, but they know what the client's OKRs are. Like they are educated on, like they know what the ultimate mission is for one client versus another. And it's to increase traffic here or to even just prove out a cost per lead model. Like not even like, let's get a hundred, you know, leads from this one channel. It's just, can we just prove it? Like, can we prove that it works? Um, so they're, they're usually incredibly versed in terms of like, what, what does the client need to accomplish to win? What does success look like? Um, but in terms of like pure incentives, I would say, um, we really don't do a whole lot of it, but just because, um, the, the, the carrot that we dangle at the end of the stick is really survival. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then, and then overcoming that, then we can start talking about what thriving looks like. And now we can start using, um, incentives to motivate in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I've always believed, and I know this is very controversial with people that are careful with money, but I've always believed that um, to to do something truly original in marketing, right? Like not another gated ebook, not another uh, whatever thing that we all do as best practices, but just something truly original. You need to feel comfortable with a chunk of your money going in a place that you will not judge by its direct attributed ROI, right? right. Going in a place that you'll be like, I'll just spend this money and see if the results overall come from this, but I won't be nitpicking about like this precise deal came from this video or came from this activation or from whatever. Um, I know you work with early age, uh, with early stage startups, but is this something that, that you also do in, in, in this practice? Is there, are there some things that you just say like, Hey, this is going to boost everything else we're doing, but I will not obsess about attributing to this one specific ROI because if I like you know whenever you close a deal these days people are like where exactly did it come from right yeah. like where is yeah. every single touch point and then you have these fights about oh no no this one was all sales well was it mm-hmm. like they read the ebook oh yeah but yeah. they we told them about the ebook right do, do you have some some channels where you just go I'll just spend here yeah um so this is this is another one of those scenarios where, um, honestly, I would say that's like a hundred percent of the channels that <laughs> that we end up turning on and experimenting and testing. That's with. great, <laughs> but, but that's the it's very so again like the way the way that we describe the effort is that really all of this is an experiment because one thing that we are not in control of is we're not in control of product market fit like there is no amount of dollars i can throw at a channel that's going to guarantee that someone comes through and buys instantly so usually whenever we talk about paid acquisition or really any any activity there are some that we have really strong bets to to place on and 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 it's because of customer research and exercises like that that give us that confidence and we know that that's a good long short term and long term bet to make but then there's others that are very much an experiment very much a test we don't necessarily know what kind of results this is going to generate but in order for us to learn we have to invest about this much per month for the next three to six months. And then we'll really know if this channel panned out the way that we thought, or if there's actually another implication somewhere else in the business that is blocking that channel from success. Google ads is hands down the most common example of this. Part of that is because it is, it can be a very high intent channel based off of the keywords that you bid on. But Google ads, and this is something I explain to founders all the time, but Google ads is great at getting you traffic. It does not care about what happens post-click. So after someone clicks, yes, like you can optimize for conversions and Google's going to do whatever, you know, voodoo it does to figure that out. But it's not responsible for your funnel. Like it's not responsible for the copy on your page. And in an early stage startup with the volumes, that optimization for conversion is going to be awful anyway. Right. Right. And and on top of that. 
Yeah. And sometimes they don't have the budget either. Like uh, if you yeah. really want to optimize for Google ads, you've got to be spending at least like three K a month, you know, in whatever um, currency of your choosing. But that's, that's kind of the, um, that's an example of when we pitch channels in that way, we know generally speaking, like what a diversified marketing strategy looks like across different channels. So you want something that's paid, you want something that's organic, you want something high intent, low intent, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to like investing in certain things, for early stage, at least, a lot of that's an experiment. All of it is. Yeah. And that's, that's really how we pitch it. Like there are really no silver bullets or guarantees about what's going to come on the other end. But if we do our jobs right, we'll learn a lot. And also, if we do it really right, we'll see some pretty impressive results. Yeah. And what's interesting is also the, the opportunity cost, right? Like you're like, okay, sure, we don't do these ads, then we don't spend that money. But other people are there. And other people are taking the top of the search engine results, right? And, oh, yeah. and they are taking your business, which you don't get to measure, but they are, right? So there's also a tricky part there. But you just mentioned product market fit, and that's a perfect segue into topic number three, <laughs> yeah. right? So thank, yeah. you, thank you for cutting it out for me. So struggling uh, with product market fit. Uh, I recently, it's, it's cool that you mentioned this because we were just talking about Rand Fishkin, and, and he wrote one of the most interesting blog posts about it recently in, in SparkTor's blog challenging the concept and he lays out how we talk about it like it's an objective metric and something we can measure with certainty when it's just simply not the case and we're saying things like hey before we reach product market fit this is what we're going to do and right after we nail it we're going to go with that and then we have no freaking clue when we reached it because there's nothing that goes in like a light in the office that says hey you just reached product market fit right that doesn't exist um, he puts it like it's more like a feeling than a standardized metrics, and I can I can definitely mm -hmm. I've always thought the same thing. I think it's very true. How do you personally assess this when deciding to take a new client or not? Because it's already hard to do that when you're in the business full time. Yeah, I love I love this question um, because, and also just overall topic because I definitely agree with Rand in some cases, and in others I disagree. But just Ooh. but just because of the kinds of businesses that I work with, early stage is a, is a big, like, that's a big category. When I say early stage, I really mean like zero to that 100K number R. Yeah. And really that zero to 10K number R. Um, a lot of businesses that I work with, they're usually are either, they're either around the 10K and they're trying to get to the first 100 or they're starting like really small. Um, product market fit, it, I completely agree that it's more of a feeling. There are some metrics and KPIs that you can use. Um, and that's actually where I start because I, with a new client, I don't necessarily have the feeling of, of, you know, being in the business and trying to sell to these people or trying to market to these people. So I don't necessarily have that feeling yet, but I, I start with a, a few KPIs. The first um, core sets of things that I analyze and look at are, and, and, you know, assuming that the founder, that the prospect is going to be really transparent with me, which is already uh, a non-starter if they're not. <laughs> so if they don't want to tell me any of their, like how the business is performing, it's already like a non-starter, like we can't work together. Um, but their churn has to be relatively healthy. Like it's got to be less than 5%. Uh, I'm, I'm using numbers based off of SaaS, by the way. So, and yeah, I ideally self-serve, um, but they've got to be converting anywhere from, um, you know, that 15 to 30% of new free trials or incoming accounts, if they're freemium, at least 3%. And then the last thing is um, cohort retention. So are they, their churn might be okay, but are they retaining their cohorts of at least 50% after the first six months to a year? And then finally, what does their LTV look like? And that just really tells me more than anything what channels we're probably going to be looking at. Their LTV tells me a lot about can we invest in paid, can we not, or, yeah. or is it ill-advised? Um, but that's what, those are the numbers that give me like the general sense. Something that we've added to that formula though is actually more on the market end. So now whenever we take on new clients, we used to not do this, but now we do. Now whenever we take on new clients, we actually analyze the competitor websites and we see how much traffic they get. <laughs> yeah. Because that that tells us how big... The TAM is any, in general. Kind of that. And then also like, is the is the digital world active? Like, are they are people searching for this? Yeah. Are they, and and even that I would say does not necessarily give us a strong sense of product market fit, but it does give us a sense of activity. Because um, the hardest thing to come in and do is obviously go into a business. They might have relatively healthy numbers, but then but then you you kind of get in and you realize like, oh, this market's actually tiny, and 
getting a new customer is going to be pulling teeth. And so that, and it's not necessarily like so much of a product market fit as a um, traction, like traction is going to be hard. What about, um, because you mentioned that sometimes they don't want to disclaim like their numbers, but also sometimes <laughs> they have no freaking clue what their numbers look like, right? Like I, I can imagine that the range of mm -hmm. companies you're talking, right? Like I, I've worked with a lot of companies that are much bigger than that, that don't have their stuff together when it comes to their metrics. Um, I can imagine a 10K, 50K MRR company has no freaking clue what their cohort retention looks like. Uh, when that's the case and you don't have access to like back-based, like back-dated data or something, um, then that puts you a little bit on a blind faith position, doesn't it? Yeah. Those are usually the businesses that we say, come back to us in six months after you implement <laughs> subscription analytics. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I would say... I would say it's actually rarer these days. Products like Bear Metrics and ProfitWell and um, ChartMogul, like that, it's made it really easy and kind of inexcusable now to not have it. But it, I would say, it still comes up every now and again. Um, it, even if they're even if they're measuring things in a spreadsheet, that's usually enough to start. Uh, but yeah, if if they don't, if they're not using something, then usually it's like a come back to us later. Yeah, and <laughs> after, it's after funny you get clarity because you just mentioned two people that were in this podcast before: Patrick from ProfitWell and Karishma from oh, ChartMogul. Were recently in the, in, in the podcast, so that's that's really cool. Uh, the yeah. other one is um, this is this is one is like a little bit of a of a particular rant of mine. So many people mm -hmm. preach the mantra of like, hey, no product marketing fit, no product market fit, then don't bother about doing marketing or hiring a growth person, right? Like, it's like don't even bother before you even have this basic requirement to like do anything. To be honest, it it sounds a little bit to me like a little bit of an excuse that marketers use as well, because sure, product market fit is necessary to ramp up growth significantly, I get that. But also, early stage companies in particular bringing in people like you and I precisely to turn that around, right? Precisely to create that, right? Because it's not just there, you need to create it as well with your messaging, your marketing and everything. So it feels a little bit like a lot of people want to take the easy way out. Like a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to join a company unless they're in hyper growth mode. Then I get there, I sit on my ass and I just grow, right? Yeah. And, and but, but somebody has to do the dirty stuff. Somebody has to take that company that's not there yet and push them there and so on. Okay, so it's easier, it's much easier and better for your career to take the, the other road because you're going to be in companies that are, all of them are hyper growth and so on. And a lot of that is going to be attributed to you even if you just happen to be there, right? And it's much more or less rewarding in the public spectrum, but maybe more in the learnings to take the other road of taking that company that is just not there and you get them from zero to one. When you pick clients, do you, do you like limit it to like only companies you kind of pre-know you can succeed with? Or do you also go in like, oh, this one's going to be really challenging, but I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> so from a, from a consultant perspective, we, we, we try to pick on, we try to pick projects that we know that we're going to be able to make a big difference at. Um, if, and making a big difference is, is really defined by we're, we're either achieving results for them that we're going to be really proud of, or we're helping them learn something and unblock them so much that they can, they can confidently move forward and not have really any, um, not that they won't necessarily have any doubts or fears anymore. It's just they recognize them and they know how to overcome them. Um, so those, those kinds of projects are huge wins for us. Yeah. Um, Personally, however, <laughs> I so I, I don't know if you're into like um, like personality types and like all that yeah. uh, on the Enneagram. I'm a three. I'm the achiever, which means that I am very attracted to opportunities that I know that I can just like come in and kill it at. Um, when when I have been able to identify that, I, I am very I'm like the first one to say, like, I know I can do a good job here. I want that project. Yeah. Usually when the projects come around that I I do think are going to be really challenging. Um, it's it's usually an indicator that I'm not the right fit, actually. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, so a prospect actually just came through my pipeline, and they they run a SaaS company that um, you know big. They're targeting big enterprise. They're still in the beta phase. They don't have any any paying customers today. Um, they're in the process of raising funding, and but but they want me to come in and help with 
like the messaging and the market, like marketing, like they want to get started now, even though they're pre-product technically, like, or no, I guess they're post-product. They're in the beta phase. So originally I was like, man, I know I could come in and kill it. Um, but where they're at, it would actually be really challenging for me to come in and make a big difference because between now and six months from now, their minds are going to change a billion times, right? Like they're going to learn a lot of stuff. They're going to like change their minds, pivot and like try this and try that. And I am very much someone who, um, I just know that like bringing me on now probably wouldn't be smart, but just purely because like they still have to figure their stuff out. Yeah. But I know I could I could come in and make just completely change, you know, and like uh, uh, really help them a lot and help them learn a lot. So so I I play it by ear, I find. Um, But typically, whenever I I come across those kinds of situations where it's like, oh, this is going to be really hard. Should I do it? You tend to avoid them. I I tend to avoid them, but only because um, I I just know that it's going to take more than just me. Like it's going to probably take them building a sales arm. It's probably them. It's going to take them um, investing more in the tech or changing like product direction. And from a consultant perspective, it's not that we can't mitigate that change. It's just that you're going to invest in someone like me, but only to might not get the best result. And so that's kind of where I I shy away from those. No, that's true. That's true. I think think that's... um there's a little bit of like, you know, like trying to avoid those challenges because you don't want to have the challenge. And there's also a little bit of like, well, it's, it's not even the best for the client, right? It's just not even the best right. for you, for me to, to come in at this point. So that, that makes sense. Uh, this takes <laughs> us to the fourth pain that you sent me, which I think is very related to it, which is achieving consistent results. You said different clients, but I, I changed it to companies. So it's also useful for, for people in in-house yeah. because I think, you know, people change jobs today every year or every two years so everybody's pretty much a consultant these days I guess so but what's interesting is that with the proliferation of of growth hacking right and 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 marketers becoming uh, more like public figures let's say like on LinkedIn right and you're like everybody's an influencer sort of thing like this podcast and everybody has a podcast and all this kind of stuff I feel like there's also an excessive focus on the individuals leading teams and leading marketing and growth teams. And companies tend to assume that somebody who grew a business from 100K in MRR to 10 million can just do that again, right? He has it in him or in her, right? They can just do it again. <laughs> this has become a major blocker for companies to not even give a chance to come to people uh, because they don't have that little tick box in their CV, right? It's like, oh, you're really smart, but you haven't been in a company with 250K MRR to 5 million, so then no, right. right? Because that should be like the thing we're looking for. And sure, to an extent, you know, having a good professional will always make a difference. But in, my op- in your opinion, what I'm interested in is how much of business growth really comes down to the individual leading the growth team or being the face of it versus just sort of right place, right time, perfect product. You were just sitting there. <laughs> like... It is, it is definitely, at least to me, extremely shades of gray. Like it's not black and white. Like it's not just like, oh, I'm going to hire this person and I'm going to like see these results and get this kind of get, get this thing. Um, it is so much more the machine in its entirety mm-hmm. and all of the elements of that machine. The best thing you can do is, is hire great people and also make sure that you have a great product and a great business. Um, and even that is saying, like, I'm saying, you know, make sure that you can do that, but that's even very much in some ways out of your control and in other ways in your control. Um, so much of it it does have to do with just the nuance and like what's going on in the market and the people you have, the products you have, the customers you're targeting, all of that, it all plays in together. What I think is really interesting is, um, personally speaking, I'm definitely one of those marketers that I technically haven't by my, you know, by my, I say by myself in finger quotes, but like I technically haven't um, taken a company to hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where I, I think, I think it's really easy to attribute, um, you know, not to diminish anyone's success or like what they've no, accomplished, but it's so easy to attribute like, oh, just she did that or like like it wasn't anything else it was just that one person it's it's so easy to do that and that's again not to diminish anyone's accomplishments of course there are people who know exactly how to accomplish something yeah what i think is really interesting is i mean going back to product market fit and going back to just how the business is currently operating the culture even so much so much of these things can 
sabotage that person's ability to execute and perform anyway. And so exactly. it's like you can hire this like rock star person and they probably know exactly what to come in and do. Um, but if they're not set up for success, if if there are things that, you know, obviously impact that person's ability to perform, then you're not going to you're not going to see the same thing. That, and so that's exactly my point, right? It's not about taking down the people that have succeeded. It's about also understanding that those who haven't had the lack of finding that success, it's not only based on their abilities, right? I think that right. the, this this kind of like thinking of like I I need to achieve consistent results, right? It's undermining in a way the fact that it's not really 100% up to you. It's probably not even 70% up to you, right? There's a lot of things that you just don't control. Like a lot of people might have perfect job and then the freaking coronavirus came and it all goes down the toilet, right? Like there's so many things you don't control and that's important. And we humans like to feel we're in control. I think, I know you're interested in psychology and that's that's clearly a thing that, that is true. So we like to think that if we take our skills to a certain level, we'll be able to consistently do that and deliver it, right? And for many people, you know, you find your path and, and things align and the gods are there for you and you get there, <laughs> right? But but for some that have just as the same qualifications and have been really, really good workers or really good at, at their craft, uh, it doesn't pay out, right? So this can lead, and this is also the reason I started this, this podcast in a way, this can lead to a lot of mental issues right? and mental health issues, right? Have you been down that train of being... Uh, I'm not cut out for this. It was my fault. I didn't do it. And start yeah, like whipping your back. And have you been on that train of like thinking that success just didn't happen because you were not 100% for it when it actually, I, you know, it was not yeah, up to you? I am so glad you asked that. Um, absolutely. There, okay, so there's like a really specific scenario that um, I'll, I'll try to talk about without giving away <laughs> what <laughs> what it was. But there was a role that I, I I had previously back when I was in house, so before Demand Maven. So for context, my background has, has been in marketing for SaaS for, I would say, the past, gosh, I guess six years now, maybe five years. Um, that's not a super long time, I think, in retrospect, but in startup world, it definitely is. Hey, it's a lifetime. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like one. Um, whole career has been in marketing, but definitely the past five or six years, I've been focused on SaaS and startups. And there was a role that I, that I had... Um, where, I mean, just from like, from a context perspective, I was really young. I think I was like 26 or so. And, um, you know, bright, excited, couldn't wait to, you know, do the thing and like, you know, get in and like prove myself and get a whole bunch of results and then be amazing. And um, there were some circumstances that were far beyond my control, like so far out of my control that um, there's, uh, there really wasn't any way that I could have won. And to be honest, I didn't know that at the time. Like I didn't realize it while I was in it. Like when I was in it, I was just like, nothing is coming to fruition. Everything seems like it's against me. I'm I'm disappointing my boss. I'm disappointing my colleagues. They probably think that I'm just like, uh, I'm just all talk and no action, um, which personally being an achiever also absolutely hate like i yeah, <laughs> like that's right like in the, right in the heart yeah <laughs> like right in the gut like i like no i do the thing too <laughs> um and it it took me years honestly it was a very traumatic experience um being in that environment and being so um oblivious to the fact that there were just things that I wasn't going to be able to control. But the unfortunate thing was that um, I did end up taking all the blame for it. Like I, I, I just kind of assumed it was my fault. And I, my self-worth tanked. Like I just, I think I was the most like just paranoid and um, like suspect person for, for months after that. And I, I, it was very traumatic. It took me, it took me a while to realize that that wasn't my fault. Yeah. And also it wasn't like, it also wasn't the end of the world was the other part, but um, it didn't have anything to do with me. And I think that that was when I, when I, it's, it's a truth I'm still um, uh, accepting in a way and mm-hmm. healing from it. I'm still healing from it years from that, from, you know, that point in my life. And um, absolutely to say, yeah. You know, and even when you overcome it, you can come back to it, right? Like it just takes a bad experience where you feel like it was you, you, you and, and your fault. But 
you were coming coming back to the topic like as a marketer we try to market ourselves right so that's part of our job um so you want your value proposition to like be hey reach out to me i'll grow your business fast 100 guaranteed right like that's the dream right like oh <laughs> yeah whenever you get me in I'll, <laughs> i'll go 10x for you and that's the thing right yeah. um which also puts a lot of pressure how do you find balance between you know keeping that up because you can also not be like on your website average marketer great person but I'm not sure I can grow your business, right? You can also go to, you can also <laughs> not go to the other extreme. You have to at some point like market yourself. How do you find a balance that you're comfortable with, with saying, I'm the person to call, you need to get me in there and I'll, and I'll fix it. But also giving it a tiny bit of like, you know, if things work out, right? Like uh, how, how do you find that balance in both in your value prop and also in your communication with your, your pr prospect clients, right? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'll start with personally, like how I mentally and emotionally manage that. And then also external, like how does that translate to the external in, in terms of like what I say and what I do? Um, I have, and it's, it's something I'm still mastering to this day. I don't know that you can ever be a master of it, but I, I am very much focusing on detachment when it comes to self-worth and the results I achieve for my clients, you know, future in-house opportunities, what have you. Um, even even joining the board, for example, at Moz, I as excited and thrilled and just over the moon as I was, I also kind of had to have that moment of Moz's success as, as much as I will fight for it tooth and nail every single day, it's not going to define me or who I am, um, which is a very, um, it's setting that personal self-care self and psychological boundary uh, because otherwise, you know, whatever Moz does, That could that could make my own self worth incredible, like incredibly overinflated or completely yeah. deflated based off of where it goes. Um, same thing for clients. Same thing also for in house uh, roles previously, especially after some of my early experiences in startups. Um, so that's that's how I've personally viewed it now. So now I am I am mastering that art of detachment. That one small thing I want to add to that because sure. I think it's a really important uh, like topic. But I think a lot of people. Because I think this detachment is two-sided. One of it is that on your own internal thinking, you detach yourself from it so you keep a healthier mind, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But there's mm -hmm. also people that take it one step further, maybe Rand being one of them, right, where, where you just also blurb it out, and you just put it all over, and you just say, hey, very happy with this success, not really my doing, a lot of people were involved, and, and you actually become more honest about it openly. Um, yeah. are, are you also you think because you know I, I always I said to Ran as well when he was on the show I was like well it's easy for you now because you have nothing to lose right like you have a brand already that people respect so you can say yeah I fucked up and people will be like okay right but when you're starting out or when you're younger um, that's a bit tougher because people want to hear yeah I'm hot stuff I'm here to deliver the growth <laughs> right so do you also feel comfortable with putting it out or is it more of an internal thing for you still Well, this is part of it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I would, I would say I definitely feel comfortable speaking candidly about um, the some of some of those like harder moments. I, I will say where I'm, um, I mean, with all, of course, love and respect. I, I, th I think that's the only, I think, real big difference. And even now, like whenever I talk about some of my horror stories, as I'm sure all marketers and founders do when it comes to these kinds of experiences, even now, I only ever want to tell some of those horror stories from a place of love and healing, of course, and also a don't do this because I made this mistake and don't ever, like, if you can't help it, don't do it. Um, yeah. Or if, you, if you're going to, at least know the repercussions here. So I, I will say I definitely feel super comfortable being candid. Uh, for me, it's just much more about um, how can I still tell this hard, awful story, but it's still heal something for someone else or release someone from something else. Because I think that my experiences historically, um, some of them were extremely positive and some of them were just awful. And I think we all kind of have, especially, you know, in SaaS and startup world where things do move at the speed of light um, and you are building a parachute as you're falling out of the plane. Um, uh, so that's, that's kind of, that's, I guess, like my approach. But going back to your other question, though, about like how does that translate into... How do I how do I communicate that mm -hmm. detachment and how do I communicate that um, I, like I'm going to manage your expectations of like listen 
the 10x, the whole like story of like the 10x and like the 10% growth month over month or whatever that is that you're trying to accomplish, like that is only possible if X, Y, Z things happen. And then from there, I kind of paint the, here's what I'm in control of. Here's everything I'm not in control of. And so when I'm able to illustrate that, it makes it, 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 it makes it really clear like, oh, okay, this is directly within our control and this is directly not in our control. It's considered an opportunity or a threat or a risk at that point. So, um, using, using like your, like your risk management skills, yeah, <laughs> I think are also really helps a lot with this. Um, and you learn that the hard way, right? I can imagine you learn that the hard way with like, uh, over promising and setting crazy targets and stuff like that. So it's a really cool way to, to start wrapping this up because we need to get, uh, you need to get going with your days at the end of the day in Amsterdam, <laughs> but you still have a lot of stuff to do. So the last bit of this, um, is resources. Usually I ask people to share yeah. a couple of resources. Is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, the f- one is is actually publicly available and the second is coming. Um, but the mm. first is, I actually also have a podcast as well. Yes. It's called the In Demand Podcast. Um, so if you, if you wanted to hear more about how I think about growth, marketing, specifically within the SaaS setting, um, whether you're a founder or a marketer, either one, that would be a great resource in addition to just the demandmaven.io blog. Um, and then the resource that does not exist yet that is coming soon. Um, I honestly can't decide if I want to launch it like now-ish or next year. So uh, (laughs) apologies for not having a hard date on when that's going to come out. But um, I have been asked to productize slash um, create a course of my growth roadmapping sessions. So um, a while back, I did a growth roadmapping session for Earnest Capital, and I got a lot of great feedback about it, so much so that a lot of people wanted to be able to take it like a course, like at any time Mm. they can come in and roadmap their growth. That is actually something that is in the works. Um, It is either going to come out, I think at the end of this year, it could also actually just be 2021, because 2020 is honestly a wash. Um, But I would say if you you keep up with me on Twitter, on demandmaven.io, you'll absolutely hear about it when it is live. That's a really interesting one, because in, in general, that's uh, a thing that a lot of people struggle with uh, trying to have a more of a you know longer term vision on how you plan your growth it's all experiments and experiments but sure but you need to have a longer term strategy so that's super interesting right anything else you want to add to that list I think that's I think that's, that's it. it I actually Thank was going to so recommend your own uh, your own YouTube channel because I think it's also really interesting oh yeah and I also want to <laughs> recommend to people Rand's article uh, the product market fit is broken concept and there's a better way I think as you say there are things there to agree and things to disagree but overall, I think it's it's really bold to just challenge a concept that's so engraved on people's mind. It's one of those concepts that people just repeat like a broken record without even thinking of it because everybody has mm-hmm. told you so. Therefore, I'm just going to go along and just keep spreading it. But when you actually think about it, you're like, huh, holy shit. Yeah, this is weird, right? And, and there's a lot of things that don't add up there. So I, I, I kudos to him for that one. And yeah, we're starting to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Aisha, for being here. I really appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully we can uh, keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye.